Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. Special Edition is a production of Intercom Communications. The views expressed by guests are not necessarily those of Intercom Communications staff, management, or sponsors. Now, here's your host, Sue Henry. On today's program, we'll talk to attendees of a Wilkesbury event about recovery from drugs and alcohol. We'll hear from a Pennsylvania state representative about potential changes in Pennsylvania's welfare benefits, and we'll check in with U.S. Senator Pat Toomey on issues including terrorism, immigration, and the budget. The message behind the kickoff of a new chapter of Young People in Recovery in Wilkesbury was, we're here for you, and there are many who understand. The grassroots group has chapters across the country, including in Scranton and Wyoming County. Attendees included John Fabazeski, chapter lead of Young People in Recovery, Wyoming County. He is also a certified recovery specialist who knows firsthand about addiction and hope. First and foremost, I am a person in long-term recovery, uh, and for what that means to me is that I haven't put a mind or mood-altering substance in my body since January 26, 2014. So directly because of that recovery, I'm able to be a husband, I'm able to be a father, a grandfather, and a friend to the people I'm friends with today, and, uh, and I'm employable today. I work as a certified recovery specialist, and uh, recovery has given me purpose back in my life. I'd like to first and foremost talk mostly about my recovery. Uh, I'm sure that most people can connect with my addiction story, but I can say that in 1990, I was arrested for underage drinking and incarcerated in the Wyoming County Jail. And uh, at that time, I had scratched my initials in the wall. You know, a cool thing to do. JMF was here in 1990. And, uh, let's say in January 2014 I found myself back in that very same jail cell and uh, praying for death. I remember putting my face on a cold concrete floor and just praying that to please take my life and uh, I thought if I could get to the blankets that I could hang myself and I thought if I could hold my breath long enough that I would stop breathing but uh, that didn't happen so I uh, I reached out to something greater than me and I asked to you know show me to the reason I need to live and uh, there they were when I turned my head those very initials that I had scratched some 20 years prior and uh, call it a, uh, a moment of clarity a gift of desperation is what I like to call it but some people would call it a divine intervention but it gave me purpose back in my life and I knew that I had to live clean and sober and uh, started my recovery journey and what'd you do well uh, I was accepted into a diversion program and uh, started moving on with my life. And uh, in that recovery, uh, I started seeing people in my community that had passed away from overdose and the jails are overflowing with people and I wanted to get involved somehow. And uh, that's when I saw this organization, Young People in Recovery. 
and I wanted to bring it back to my community. So I made the connections possible to do so, and uh, we're just over a year old in Wyoming County. And what has happened in that one year span? Where did you start and where are you now? Uh, where we started was is that we didn't have uh, a lot of people as YPR, we believe in uh, however you find your recovery, whatever your path is, uh, everybody has an it. You know, if it works, if you work it, uh, everyone has, a, has an it, and uh, it's your job to really to find your it, and we just, we try to embrace that, so anybody that's in recovery, however you find it, you're welcome. But uh, we try to help people with education, housing, and employment, and in our area there weren't so many resources to do that, especially in Wyoming County. Uh, but since, uh, since we got started, we've raised a lot more awareness. We've got uh, partnered with the, the Chamber of Commerce to get ourselves out there a little more. Uh, we've helped young people get jobs. We've helped uh, young people find a little bit better residencies. Housing is a big issue in our community, but we're resilient for one thing. We've got a lot of life experience and uh, so we hope to uh, grow as time moves on. And I guess it's all in that hope, right? Isn't that part of this program is always maintaining and sustaining a hope that maybe you had lost for a little while there when you were in the jail cell looking at your initials? Absolutely. Uh, hope. It's so uh, cliche to say, hold on, pain ends. And that's what hope stands for. And if we can, if it helps for me to be open and honest about my recovery, to help fight that stigma and break those barriers down to say it's okay. And I, I know where you've been. And, uh, you know, I, I heard something the other day about uh, an addict had fell in the hole, a hole in the ground. And uh, they said, uh, a, a preacher walked by and said, uh, well, here, let me throw the Bible down. And, uh, you know, the, so the person reads the Bible with substance use disorder, reads the Bible, and he still can't get out of the hole. And then a doctor walks by and says, oh, here, let me throw some pills down there for you. I got to go, you know. And, of course, being a person with substance use disorder, they, they use the pills. But uh, then another, another person with substance use disorder walks by and says, hey, I see you down there. And he yells up at him. He jumps in the hole with him. And he goes, oh, come on. Now we're both stuck down here. He says, it's all right, man. I've been here before, I know the way out. So it's just about helping others. It's just breaking down those barriers, bridging the gap and saying it's okay. It's okay to be where you're at. And uh, there's people here like uh, being that light in the window. The other message is it really doesn't have to last forever. For me, I can say in my own recovery that every day I do the same thing. I ask a, a power greater than myself to give me the strength to go through the day without a drink or a drug. And uh, I've been successful at doing that for a little over three years now. And uh, like I said in the beginning, uh, it's something that uh, is individualistic, that every person must find their own it. And I found mine, and uh, I like to help people find theirs. Patrick of Wilkes-Barre also spoke to us about his journey, which led him to Wilkes-Barre and recovery. I've been battling addiction now for about five years. I originally came up this way about three years ago to get away from where it originally started, and I found a home up here, and I've been up and down for some time, but the recovery here is strong, so this is where I found a home and the best outlet to stay sober. When you say it's strong, what makes it strong in your opinion here? Uh, there's a lot of young people that are staying sober and that are, are showing that it's possible no matter what age you are. There's a wide range of people from young to old that are just really doing this thing and living the life that you need without drugs and alcohol. And what are they doing together as a group? I mean, you know, when you are in recovery, I guess you have to change almost everything that you know about your life. What makes this work for you or, or what is being done here to keep people away from bad influences, so to speak? big thing is definitely like what we have going on here today, the fellowship, showing that there are things outside of drugs and alcohol. There is support. There is 
a big community outreach, uh, places where you can go and people that you can rely on that, that'll help show you the way. In terms of your recovery, I know it's ongoing. What are some of the things that led you to want that so bad? I was thinking about, well, what inspires people to get into recovery in general? Probably knowing that the life you were living, there's, there's no hope there. There's, there's no hope whatsoever in, in addiction. Uh, you can't, all your dreams and goals and aspirations go out the window. And, and you see people that are just like you that understand where you've been and they're living the life that you always wanted. So there's hope. Do you ever message that to other people, by the way? I mean, when you see people who, who you think you may be able to help in their recovery, what is some of the advice that you give them? We lead more by example and action. We don't, you know, try not to talk too much. This is attraction rather than promotion. And so we really just try to live it. The, the whole purpose of this thing is to, to pay it forward and try and, and lead by example. Since you got into recovery, what are some of the things that have happened in your life that you know it's the right path? I have true friendships. I have honest relationships. I'm, I'm genuinely happy. Just a culmination of, of things. I, I don't stress or worry about things as much. It's just a freedom that I've never had. Zane also attended the Young People in Recovery kickoff in Wilkes-Barre. For the past, I guess, eight years, I've been battling uh, opiate addiction, uh, alcoholism. I just, I burned all my bridges. I had nowhere to turn. A, a friend of mine reached out to me from Wilkes-Barre, and uh, he told me to come up here to the Salvation Army and, and, and try it out. And I, I've came uh, September 19th and never looked back. How hard was it for you to get into a situation where you could maintain any kind of sobriety or, or stay away from drugs? Well, I had to beat myself down to, to a state of reasonableness. Like, I always thought that, that I could maybe do it successfully, and it, it always backfired and failed. It just took me to be w- within an inch of death. Like, I overdosed one time, and uh, from then, then the light bulb turned on that maybe I should try to try to stop and it's funny because uh, it, it takes a hold of your of your brain to the fact where uh, even though I overdosed for the next two months I still did the same things while I was trying to, to stop. It's really hard for people to understand that are not taking drugs and sometimes they say why do you keep doing this it's so dangerous you almost end up dead why did you keep going back to that knowing you were so close to actually killing yourself? I learned that uh, it's, it's a thing inside me that, that makes me want to keep using, like to take me out of myself, uh, never feel comfortable around people. It, it's something to, to mask the real world, like the pain from the world. I take drugs to stop the pain, but it's funny because the more drugs you take, the more pain you endure. So then you try to take more drugs to mask that pain. And it's just, it's a never ending cycle. How do you encourage people who have the kind of behavior that you had that there is a path forward because I imagine when you're in that situation you really don't want to listen to anybody. You, you have to lead by example for one and uh, what I've learned in this process is uh, you can't really help someone unless they want it so when they reach out for help is when you can show them the way. I, I teach people some of the knowledge that I know that I've learned through this process and uh, just hopefully it's, they stick with it and uh, they see that this is a better life than, than it was before. Why do you think we have such a big opioid crisis at the moment. What's your perception of that? When we're teenagers, we start drinking and we start using marijuana, and then we just steadily try other things, and, and sometimes things stick. Like me personally, when, when I first started taking pain pills, uh, it was for pain. At least I thought that's what it was for. And then it just got to the point where it was a, it was a necessity to live. And uh, when I wasn't uh, under the influence, I, it was, I was miserable, I was restless, irritable, discontent. All the things that they say, like, it's true. 
it's 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 so hard to stop but once you start once you start this you see that like the the future is very very bright you started for pain how did that happen a family member uh, offered me a pain pill one time after a long day of work my back was hurting and uh, I felt like I was on cloud nine and then uh, the next day I got another one and then the next day I asked her for one and then the day after that I asked her for two and then it just slowly went downhill from there you know did you move beyond pills if uh, and how many pills a day were you taking when you were taking pills it's hard to even count uh, as many as I could afford really and yes, I did. I, I eventually uh, started uh, using heroin uh, and talk about a downward spiral at free fall speed. That's exactly what happened. 2013 is, is that was the year I started. And uh, by the end of the year, I was in a rehab, you know, and then after that, jails, you know, all this different stuff that, that, that they say happens. And it all happened to me. Check, check, check. You know what I mean? And how about how about now? I mean, what was the thing that finally got you to stop besides the fact that, you, you know, you almost died? But what what really or who or what stopped you? Luckily, uh, through God, someone had me, gave, gave me the, someone gave me the advice to come up here to, to get away from where I'm from. Like they always, they always say a geographical change isn't the answer, but I left the old me there. And uh, once I started, like uh, I'm in a fellowship, a 12 step program. And uh, once I started going through the book, you get a sense of relief. And it's, you get to see like the root causes of why you've done what you've done in the past. And once you can, uh, come to terms with those things, you don't even have the obsession anymore. Like I obsessed over it for for years, you know, until, until this finally started happening, this, this recovery journey, and I'm, I do not want to go back to those old ways. What's your aspiration now? Really, I'm, I'm working right now, uh, just trying to save money and, and maybe just keep, keep improving in life, you know, the things that we all dream of as kids. I got away from that. I, uh, I would work a little bit, quit, get another job, quit. You know, as soon as I had enough money to do what I wanted to do, uh, but now I'm trying to, I'm trying to just be an adult. You know, get a family, kids. Who knows where I'll end up? You know. Ryan Taylor, regional coordinator of Eastern Pennsylvania's Smart Recovery Chapter, told us about the services his group offers here. The group hopes to expand those in the near future. I learned about Smart Recovery from a VA hospital I was in, and what Smart Recovery does is we're an evidence-based approach to addictive behaviors. Um, we hold face-to-face -face and online meetings. Um, we have groups throughout the area. We're trying to set up more in this area. We've got quite a few going right now and more to come. I started getting involved with it because it was a, we use tools from like cognitive behavioral therapy, rationally emotive behavioral therapy, and motivation enhancement therapy. And it really helped me to understand and change the way I think about my addictive behaviors and to be able to abstain from any type of addictive behavior. Sounds a little bit uh, different than some of the other kind of treatment. Can, why do you think it is successful, or how did it work for you? Well, for me, the, I grew up in Tunkhannock, up in Wyoming County, and growing up, for me, it was like I felt like that was, you know, when I started getting involved in these things, it felt like that was the only way that I was going to be, that I was going to be like this for the rest of my life. And when I stopped and I started looking at things from different perspectives and start to understand that my, like, how to interrupt my thought processes in regards to my addictive behavior, it really opened my eyes. I had done a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy in the past through the VA Medical Center, and it just kind of 
clicked for me and it's I, I noticed that it would really help a lot of the people that I grew up with and that's why when I came back up here we weren't really around here smart recovery we've been around since 94 but there's there wasn't a lot of meetings in this area and I work with an amazing group of people throughout the area there's now meetings in Scranton Duryea we're working on some down here in Wilkesbury we have several in Tunkhannock we're working on setting some up in Susquehanna and Bradford County just trying to make people's options available to them to understand that there are multiple pathways to recovery and one thing might not work for everybody. I became a facilitator back in October and um, since then like I said we've grown exponentially we have um, we have different hosts and facilitators we have people in training getting ready to start the groups you know I work with the VA and other facilities around here trying to get things set up. How is this different than maybe some of the other programs that we see and, and we know that those programs are effective but how is this in your opinion since it worked for you effective for other people? For me the big thing that I well like I said I struggled with was my thought processes I felt like I, I when we go through and we have the issues with powerlessness and we don't we're this is more of a self-empowering program we learn to change our behaviors and our thoughts from within from within as opposed to from outside sources how does somebody get involved in this or if somebody's listening what is the pathway to involvement do you have a website that they could look at do you have to register to be in the program or anything like that we have a website our, our national website is www.smartrecovery.org from there you can be involved with there's online meetings and 24 7 chats we have about three meetings a day online some of them are actually in other countries because um, depending on what time you go you can also attend any of the lo local face-to-face -face meetings, which you can find rather through the website, our meeting locator, or you can contact myself, who's the regional coordinator for our area. Uh, my number is 912-532-6378. We also, I have a Facebook page, which is Smart East PA, as well as we have our website for the region, which is www.smarteastpa.org. I've been asking some of the other people I've been talking with here about their own recovery and, and what made it finally effective for them. Can you talk a little bit about that? For me it was being, in, being a veteran and having served in a war zone, um, I came home and for me it was I spent all my time whether with the negative thinking that I had or in the processes of doing my addictive behavior. So when I came home I had to find something to fill that void that I had in me and to give myself a sense of purpose. I got involved with with Smart Recovery when I came back and started doing all that, but I also got another involved with other organizations such as Young People in Recovery, and I'm I work with the ch our chapter in Wyoming County, and I just for me it was to get involved and to do things and to have give myself a sense of purpose again. The Young People in Recovery, it seems like it's absolutely the right time before they are embedded in behavior that's kind of hard to untangle. How do you offer support to some of these younger individuals that you see? Through YPR, we work with, um, we advocate for those who are still suffering and through and for people in recovery themselves, as well as we have programs that we're trying to work through with connecting people with resources such as housing, education, and employment. Why do you think that our opioid problem specifically is so raging in where we live now? I really can't say for, sh for sure. Um, that's really more, I like to focus on what we can do to address it and to help people that are in recovery or looking for recovery to get the support they needed and the resources to maintain their recovery once they've decided to abstain.
is there something that you find is working better than other things? Is it long, longer term treatment, more comprehensive services? What is it? Everyone's different. So one thing doesn't necessarily work for everyone. For me, I've, I went through several times in treatment. Um, I've been to, I've done therapy for my PTSD as well, and I spent some time in a treatment facility for that. But like I said, it goes down to everybody's different, but just being able to have those options of whether we need to, you know, if they, if they need long-term treatment, then it should be available to them. If they need, if they need resources on the, once they get in the outside and want to try to start rebuilding their lives, you know, the community, we need to pull together and to work together and get everything and help the people that need it. Do you see any kind of path forward? Do you see hope at the moment for, for some of this situation? Because it does seem to be very grave. Oh, of course. The more we all work together as a group and as a community, the better it's going to get, you know, to show people that it's you don't have to be ashamed about it. You can come out and you can talk to people and there's always going to be people around that are willing to to work with you and to help you in any way they can. Young People in Recovery has chapters in Scranton, Wyoming County and now Wilkes-Barre. Visit their Facebook pages for more information. You are listening to Special Edition on You're Intercom Communications. You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications, hosted by Sue Henry. Stories of fraud and waste in Pennsylvania's Welfare Benefits Program were a hot topic at a recent hearing held in Luzerne County by several area lawmakers. The use of the Access Benefits Card was discussed, and several local store owners outlined what they believe are abuses of the program. The session also included information about work programs. We spoke to State Representative Aaron Coffer of the 120th Legislative District about the hearing and his suggestions for improving the benefits system. These are people that had reached out to me who have talked about this issue a number of times and they about different things that they can see at the ground level and things that aren't going well. The whole purpose of this started um, under our Majority Leader Dave Reed. He started an initiative called the Poverty Initiative about how we can help lift people out of poverty, get people to be self-reliant, and get them off the government doles. And a lot of these things that we're trying to do is, first of all, get people so that they can be self-sufficient, make sure that they're able to to get to work and be able that that they can get off government roles. But, you know, we have to make sure that we're able to train people and get them into the workforce, which is why we had somebody like Warren Faust from the building trades there to talk about apprenticeship programs. Tom Bisesky from Thomas's was there to talk about what he sees at his grocery store. T.J. Murray from Peter's Deli. So it's, it's things that we're seeing at the ground level, and it's about trying to make people self-reliant and uh, – being able to give them the, the hand up, not the hand out. And I think that's the whole focus of this. What are we doing different in Pennsylvania that other states aren't doing? When it comes down to our, our benefits, we're much more beneficial than our surrounding states. Okay, now, Aaron, let, let's talk about that. We are more beneficial than surrounding states. In what way? We're the only state now out of all 50 states that has a program called ETANF. It's Extended Temporary Assistance for Needy Families. Uh, this is a five-year pass-through program from the federal government. After the five years, we're the only state that allows people to stay on indefinitely. And it's actually paid for by taxpayer dollars with a spend down from uh, uh, state dollars with some minor match from the federal government. But this is a program where the only state that now has it allows people to collect a cash benefit that is indefinite. And like I said, we're the only state that does that. We're the only state in the region that doesn't have a family cap. So we give additional dollars for each child 
New Jersey has one, New York has one. A lot of these states set up these family caps back in 2005. They were challenged in the Supreme Court and were upheld as constitutional. And so they've kept them in place. And we're a state that has never adapted to this and really hasn't done much in really taking on some issues regarding welfare reform. Now, in your opinion, since you're in Harrisburg all the time, why haven't we taken up some measures that other states have and and nobody came along and and, uh, shamed them into reforming programs and said they were mean and cruel? If, If New York and New Jersey did it, I imagine there was an impetus or a reason why they did it. Uh, why haven't we done it? You know, it's a very complicated issue. And even being one of the people who's leading on this issue in our state, it's one of these things that, you know, if you move a dollar here, it affects a dollar there. There's a lot of matching dollars that come through all through these funds. And it gets very convoluted, very confusing. It's a process we've been, I've been working on for two and a half years now and still only have a very basic understanding of how all these dollars affect one another. But at the very least, we are very well aware that we're spending dollars we shouldn't be spending, especially when you look at what surrounding states are doing. And uh, unfortunately, I think, it, you know, nobody's had, had the guts to step up and to talk about this. I mean, every study that there is out there shows that that time limits work, work requirements work, and that's another piece that we're talking about. Already in the law, we have a 20-hour community service or work requirement that's already in the law for people collecting TANF. We just don't enforce it in Pennsylvania. And, and it, it's very frustrating because it's in the law. This is a way that we can do welfare to work reform, get people from welfare back to work, back to being self-sufficient. And, you know, it's something that I think nobody begrudges somebody that needs help and has fallen on tough times. You know, when when a spouse dies and now is a single parent or something, nobody begrudges that. It's about trying to get people who are becoming generational on, on these systems and how do we make them to break the cycle of poverty. If other states don't have the, the lavish benefits that we have, do you think that we have individuals who have uh, migrated into Pennsylvania because they know the system provides? benefits that they can't get anywhere else? Yes, I, I, I actually asked somebody this at a, at a convenience store the one time. I saw that she pulled in in, a, in with plates from New Jersey, and I asked, and she she went up and she spent with the access card. And I asked her, I said, you know, I, I, I see that you, you have plates from New Jersey. You know, I'm wondering, and she, she flat out said, I get more money here in Pennsylvania. It was it was one of those moments of just pure clarity where, you know, you, you just had that moment of where it broke through, and she just said, absolutely, I make more money here in Pennsylvania than I do in another state. Is and it? it was just such such a, a moment of honesty and transparency in the system with somebody who is collecting the benefit. And I, I, I applaud her for being upfront and honest about it, but I'm sure she's not the only one that feels that way. Is there a, a much of a residency requirement for individuals? That, that, in the that is a massive issue. Our residency requirement issue in Pennsylvania is very weak. You can begin collecting from day one. And uh, that's one of the issues that other states have put in place. We've been trying to do that as well. We're actually trying to put in place an interstate compact as well. That's one of the pieces of legislation that I've been pushing so that if you max out your benefits in one state, you can't just move to another state and begin maxing out benefits there as well. This is a massive issue with the residency requirement that we are very weak in that regard in Pennsylvania. To be honest, there was a a study done, I think it's the the Foundation for Government Accountability, the FGA, I believe, is, is their acronym. And what they showed in regard to welfare reform 
they did it by red light, uh, yellow light, or green light. And we had all reds and yellows. And actually, I would argue that the couple of yellow lights they gave us should have been red light. But um, there is so much more we need to be doing. And it's about being cognizant of the taxpayers. These are their dollars. And when you have blue-collar people who are going to work and, and busting their humps, it, it's very frustrating when you have people who are are living on the system and, and maintaining the cycle of poverty. So I know we talked a little bit about, you know, about the crackdown end, but the other half of what we're trying to do is welfare to work, transition people, get them into into the workforce, workforce development programs as well, working on benefits cliffs. You know, in, in my bill that got signed into law last year, we had the smoothing of the child benefits cliff, which if you got a child care subsidy and you earn twelve seventy five an hour, you can re- get a full subsidy. As soon as you made $13 an hour, you lost the entire subsidy. And you didn't actually recoup the cost of it until you earned $21 an hour. That's what's continuing and perpetuating the cycle of poverty that knocks somebody down as they start to do better for themselves. So, you know, we have to smooth this out, make sure that we can help people, you know, climb out of poverty and into the middle class and being self-sufficient. What are some of the other things, Aaron, that you're working on to make this possible? Because that just sounds uh, pretty much absurd. You're, you go from 1275 to 13 and you lose it and you don't gain it back until 21. Obviously, that is going to prevent somebody from moving up. I mean, it's just it, the math is right there. What else are you doing? That's a, a major part of it. The work requirement piece and actually so one of the, the bills that I'm working on that we'll be announcing either this week or next week will be a welfare to work pilot program that's in Luzerne County will be the pilot for this program for welfare to work reform and to help partner with our, our businesses, our communities, our government and getting people out there, uh, getting them back into the workforce and finding programs where people can get uh, be employed and, and transition out of this. That's going to be a big deal for Luzerne County. You know, I mentioned the interstate compact. We're, we're talking work requirements as well, workforce development, some of these benefits cliffs as well. Um, similar, I heard you talking before about trying to get nutritional food, mm-hmm. nutritious food as part of the program. We're actually working on a resolution requesting that the federal government give us a waiver um, on SNAP so that we could limit and move towards more nutritional food for people. Um, So that's something that we're focused on as well. But, you know, pretty much we're trying to see what are we doing different that other states aren't doing and where are we being, you know, uh, where are we giving extra benefits that others aren't? And uh, I think that's what we're trying to do is see where we can save taxpayer dollars and to make sure that programs are successful. Has there been another state in the country that has received a waiver for the SNAP program to try to make the food purchased uh, more nutritional? Uh, not that I'm aware of, but with the new administration, we are we are cautiously optimistic that they will allow us to try to do something like this and see what we can do here in Pennsylvania. I've talked to a number of our federal colleagues. It's something that we can't do because the federal government right now, and uh, they are aware of it and are aware that we would like to move in a direction. Because at the end of the day, um, if people are eating non-nutritional food and going in that direction, you know, it, and they are on, on welfare benefits, you know, we are footing the bill of this. I know it's something that you mentioned before, and I think it's something that we have to be cognizant of as taxpayers as well. When you had this hearing and you had uh, the the gentleman from uh, Thomas's Market, it's a local supermarket chain, and you had mm-hmm. uh, the representative from the uh, deli in Wilkes-Barre, when they came out and they gave that kind of testimony about uh, what they see in their 
their own businesses. Was that eye-opening to people? Because as you know, Aaron, we have a lot of people, when you talk about this issue, and I knew it would happen, and it did happen already, that say uh, you're, you're poor shaming and uh, don't you tell us what we can eat, et cetera. Did that change anyone's perception of, of what's going on here? I certainly think it changed members of our of our committee. You know, the two different people who were there that owned businesses. One testified that um, that he believed that about fifty percent of the food uh, of the of the access card purchases were somewhat fraudulent in nature, and the other person was seventy percent uh, fraudulent. So. It, it's certainly big issues, and when they're talking about getting phone calls and people bought food from their grocery store and it's still wrapped in Thomas's, you know, if they're buying produce or meat, something like that, and it says Thomas's on it, then they're trying to sell it at a at a restaurant um, nearby. I mean, that's obviously fraud and stuff that we should be cracking down on, but. When we even went and asked, well, there's a, a phone number here for welfare fraud. Have you called it? And they testified it's absolutely useless. So the fact is that th these programs, you know, nobody's begrudging people. Nobody wants anybody out in the streets who can't afford a meal or can't do anything like that. But the thing is, these benefits are beyond the basic necessities. And I think that's what has people frustrated in our area. You know, I often describe our area, it's a working class poor area where people are working harder and harder. Everything's going up in cost. Property tax and everything else is going up. And people are having less and less money who are out there working every day. And it's very frustrating when they see people who are not working, who are out there and, and living a good lifestyle. It's something that we can be doing to help uh, to help society in general and to make sure that people can not only get off the rolls, but become taxpayers themselves and contribute back to the system for the things that they've been able to benefit. So um, it's it's a two-handed approach, and it, it's not it's not all poor shaming, as somebody would, would say. It's about lifting people out of that cycle of poverty and getting people back to work. There are remedies for this, though, and they are in place. Uh, if there is uh, fraud, I believe it is the office of the inspector general that gets involved Correct. in this right okay and i have seen on their website that they have done some work in this regard and they have listed people who they found were abusing the program i in fact some of them were from northeastern pennsylvania so i want you to know that i did see some of that information is it important that uh, people realize that if you do misuse these programs, there could be a consequence for you. And this is misusing them. I mean, we talked about the lobsters, and uh, right now that's perfectly okay. I guess it would just be reselling the lobsters that would be the bad part. That, that, that's right. It, and I've, I've had private meetings with people from the Inspector General for Welfare Fraud, their office, and th these are the people who are doing the work day in and day out, and they are very frustrated. They feel like their recommendations aren't always um, followed up on by the administration with people who are abusing the system, and I can tell you, you know, I sat down with a group of people in my office, and they were very, very frustrated at the way things are operating here in Pennsylvania and wish, wish there was more that they could do, but uh, as I was told by these people their hands were tied. That's State Representative Aaron Coffer, who attended a recent hearing on welfare benefits. You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications. You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications, hosted by Sue Henry. 
the world was rocked by another terrorist attack this week in Manchester, England. A concert venue became a place of horror when a suicide bomber detonated a device, killing 22 and injuring nearly 60. We spoke to Pennsylvania U.S. Senator Pat Toomey the day after the attack, and he shared his thoughts on it, as well as his ideas for protecting America from terrorism. Well, what I keep thinking about is, are we doing all the things that we need to be doing to maximize our security, to minimize the risk of attacks on our own soil? It may not be possible to take the risk down to absolutely zero, but there sure are a lot of things we can do to minimize the risk. This is one of the reasons why I think you have to have extremely vigorous, extremely thorough vetting of people who come from failed states in these areas that are known to be populated with jihadists. I mean, it's just obvious to me that if you can't do a proper background check because there is no governing entity to confirm an identity, for instance, what then, you know what, you can't bring them in. Uh, You need to know who's coming into this country. It's also a reason why I think we need to make sure we have the intelligence ability to identify patterns when known terrorists are in communications with other people. We need to have the ability to identify that they are in such communication. And frankly, it even relates to sanctuary cities. The idea that we allow people who are suspected of being dangerous suspected by Homeland Security of being threats to our security, and in some cases have prior criminal convictions, but we nevertheless set them free in sanctuary cities because they came here illegally. We grant this special, this special privilege to them. That's just madness. So, you know, it's, um, it's a combination of things, Sue, and it's frustrating when I know there are cases where we're not doing all that we could be doing, but that's, that's what I think about. How do, we, how do we enhance our security? Also, uh, this dovetails on some statistics that ICE put out recently where they arrested 41,000 individuals who are either known or suspected of being in the country illegally, and they said that was up uh, 37.6%. And when they arrested these individuals, they put in their own release, this isn't me or you saying it, nearly 75% of those arrested during the period in 2017 are convicted criminals. Pat, I don't know, but there's always this notion to demonize anybody who talks about this as being uh, a profiler and a racist. How do we overcome those things? Do we keep spitting facts out or... How does this happen that you... Yeah, look, I think we just can't be intimidated by people who want to um, smear those of us who are simply legitimately concerned about our security. And most Pennsylvanians get it. Most Americans, I think, get it. I've been attacked uh, for my opposition to sanctuary cities. I've been called every name you can imagine. You know what they are. And it doesn't deter me one bit because I know it's the right thing to do to bring an end to these sanctuary cities that that jeopardize all of our securities. In terms of uh, the the things that uh, you folks find out about when there is uh, an attack overseas, what kind of information do you get? I know you can't tell us about it, but what happens when something like this occurs? How do you find out about it and what kind of information do you receive? that we don't. First, initially, we hear about it the same way you hear about it. We hear about it through media reports. You know, that happens almost instantaneously now, obviously. And then usually, certainly if it's a domestic event, usually if it's a significant foreign event, we will then have a classified briefing. And then our intelligence experts or our um, law enforcement experts, whoever the relevant folks are, will typically tell us what they know. 
um, who was behind it, how much information have we learned, were they operating alone, were they in a part of a group, do they reach into the United States or, do, or not, how much do we know about those things, what kind of training did they get. We try to learn as much as we can so that we understand the nature of the threat so that we can, of course, defend against that threat. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the Senate Intelligence Committee and an anticipated testimony of former FBI Director James Comey. Um, Can you talk about this? And I know that you put out uh, a missive, I think it was last week, where you even suggested that Republicans reach across, if I'm remembering this correctly, reach across the aisle to replace James Comey possibly with a Democrat. Am I right on that? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So here's my here here's um, my thinking on this. The FBI is in the process of in- investigating whether or not there was any collusion between the Trump campaign and Russians. They're also um, investigating exactly what the Russians did, uh, how they did it, and what their motive was. I hope they're also investigating whoever it was that committed a felony when they released the identity of Michael Flynn, who we found out was under surveillance, and we ought to know why he's under It's still not clear to me why he was under surveillance, but that's, that's also uh, part of this. At the end of this process, I think it's really important that the American people have complete confidence that the FBI did a completely thorough, apolitical job where they followed the facts and came to a conclusion based exclusively on the facts, and they were not in any way influenced, intimidated, or otherwise affected by the Trump administration or anyone else. I think chances are greater of getting to that outcome if the FBI director is somebody who's not a Republican supporter of Donald Trump. It's just, you know, it's just a fact that people will find it easier to believe a conclusion if, it, if the FBI comes to the conclusion that there were, was no crime committed, there was no collusion. Uh, frankly, I think it'll be easier for uh, most Americans to believe that if the uh, head of the FBI clearly has no contact whatsoever. So several names have been floated. Joe Lieberman recently. Um, I think Joe Lieberman would be a good choice. Uh, nobody thinks that he's doing the bidding of Donald Trump. Everybody believes he would do a thorough, honest job and simply follow the facts. I wouldn't advocate Joe Lieberman. In a, there, are, there are many positions in government for which I would not support Joe Lieberman. But heading up law enforcement at the FBI, that's something I would. Do you think all of this, uh, spe- I, I, I think it's a spectacle, all these things, uh, the, the special counsel, the, uh, the hearings, et cetera, et cetera. Does this have the potential to derail the president? Well, um, not if no crimes were committed. If uh, if the, the president and his uh, you know immediate advisors uh, didn't engage in any collusion, didn't uh, commit any crimes, didn't engage in any kind of cover up, then no, then I don't think that. Then I think this will pass. Um, but this is partly why I, I think it's important that whoever's leading the FBI has the the confidence and credibility with the American people so that if they come to that conclusion, which, which by the way, I wouldn't be the least bit surprised if they come to exactly that conclusion, that there was no crime, there was no collusion. And if that's the case, then um, well, they should come to that conclusion if that's where the facts lead them, um, make the relevant announcements and move on. We are going to find out uh, more about uh, the budget. And there are already some indicators out there that some of the the programs, Pat, for people who are on the margins, they would be Medicaid and uh, food stamps, m- might be might be trimmed. 
And of course, there's there's hysteria over that. Although these decisions have haven't been made final by any means by anybody yet, but the hysteria is kind of ramped up, and people are saying, "Look, uh, Trump is is attacking his own supporters." Well, uh, you know what? I, I look at this budget. And I haven't had a chance to, to scour it by any means. Uh, it's it's just out. It's it's um, it's brand new. We didn't get a uh, advance uh, look at this, but I think the president is calling for uh, reducing spending by something on the order of 10% over the course of 10 years might be it's probably less than that and what I know about this federal government there's a lot more than 10% that can be trimmed we have so many duplicative programs so much uh, bloated uh, so many bloated agencies I mean some of these programs have gotten so huge to trim them by 10% from where the they will otherwise be in other words they probably still grow but a little bit less than what's projected that's not draconian now now I, as I say maybe there are individual line items that I will object to. I happen to think the NIH does very, very important work that we need to continue to fund. And I think the initial drafts, they were talking about big reductions to the NIH. I wouldn't agree with that. But um, the general idea that we should reform our tax code to encourage really strong economic growth, bring our budget into balance, and trim spending by something on the order of 10%, that doesn't sound crazy to me. When you talk about these programs that are bloated and duplicated in other areas, do you have any examples off the top of your head that you could point out to people and they would say, oh yeah, now we know what he's talking about? Yeah. I mean, one is the case of job training programs. There's, we have 47 different job training programs in the federal government. Could that possibly make sense? 47 different programs operating under seven or eight different government agencies and departments. They don't talk to each other. They don't coordinate. We don't measure their outcome. We don't know which ones really get people the jobs they're supposed to and which ones completely fail. Um, This doesn't make any sense. We ought to be holding uh, strict accountability. We ought to be consolidating this. I have legislation that would do that. It would basically get rid of the ones that are failing and transfer resources to ones that are succeeding, get rid of a lot of overhead, save a lot of money, and do a better job. It's very hard to do that, though, because once you create one of these programs, you create a constituency for keeping it. Right. And that's, that's one of the battles we have across the whole government. And I would think that at times, Pat, it seems to me that there are just buzzwords and headlines that are kind of put together to be uh, sensational. And instead of just reading headlines, I, I think we need to go deeper at points. And if there is, if there are things, and, and like you said, these programs don't talk to each other, then I, I believe that maybe there is merit in saying, do we need that many? Can some be folded in or yeah, uh, run under? Yeah, yeah, and that does that doesn't seem unreasonable. The idea of trimming ten percent from this government, the, the you know the biggest government budget in the world by far. I mean, the federal government's budget is bigger than the economy of the vast majority of the entire countries of the world. Believe me, there's a lot of waste, there's a lot of duplication, there's a lot of unnecessary programs. I, I think it makes sense to uh, to really scrutinize these. How about Medicaid, where uh, there are plans apparently to cut from Medicaid? How do you see that? So the, the way I'm looking at this is, first of all, Obamacare dramatically expanded Medicaid, right? It created a new category of eligibility. It used to be that the people who qualified for Medicaid were people who really weren't in a position to be able to get 
health insurance themselves. Um, very poor elderly people, blind and disabled people, children in poor families. These were the big categories of eligible people within Medicaid. What Obamacare came along and said, let's add a new category, and that will be young, healthy, able-bodied, working-age people with no dependents. If their income is below 138% of the poverty level, we'll put them on Medicaid too. Oh, and the federal government will pay, after a few years in which it pays all of the costs, the federal government will pay 90%. So what the House passed bill says is, okay, this new category of eligibility is going to stay. Nobody loses their eligibility. Not a single person gets thrown off Medicaid who's on it. House Republicans have basically authorized, validated, codified, however you want to put it, this Obamacare expansion of Medicaid. The change that they've said is, since we absolutely can't afford it at 9% of the cost, we're going to ask the states to pay the share of Medicaid that they pay for all the other categories of eligibility, which works out to something like 43% or something, some, something just below 50% on average. So that's the big change, that the House Republicans have suggested that states ought to contribute a significant portion, like they do for all the other categories, for this new category of eligible Medicaid recipients. And that's what has people setting their hair on fire in some cases, that somehow that's an outrageous thing to do. I don't think it's outrageous if states think this expansion is so valuable and important, then why shouldn't they be willing to contribute something meaningful towards the cost. That's Pennsylvania U.S. Senator Pat Toomey speaking to us this week about the Manchester terror attack and the proposed federal budget. You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications. Thanks for listening to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.